The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, put some sharp in your effing cheddar and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 293 with guests Don Sine, Luke Hoban, and Ralph Herbridge, recorded live Monday, November 19, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now, bringing world-class expert-led training in C-Sharp, ASP.NET, VB.NET, SharePoint, BizTalk, Team System, and Workflow Foundation on-site to your development team. Details online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Developer Express. Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. Com. And now, the man who wishes he never showed hamsterdance.com to his five-year-old, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, Lawrence. I uh, don't know who writes your jokes, but keep it up. Oh, I guess that's me. <laughs> Actually, I knew that. I knew you wrote that. You know what? You know what? I, I, I'm doing this intro here before the joke, so it's all just kind of fun how radio goes together, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, it's all time plus- shifted and... We just we're we're working to make a good product for the people. That's what we're trying to do. And of course, the show was recorded a couple of weeks ago, and this is the intro, which is recorded separately, and it's published while while we're in both in Vancouver at Dev Teach. Yeah, but I got to tell you that Lawrence um, really, really enjoys the joke thing because, you know, he writes a lot of them. Yes. And sometimes we'll be here at three o'clock in the morning just looking up, staring up the ceiling, leaning back in the chairs, trying to think up a joke for this particular show. And the criteria is if it makes me laugh, then it's okay. No matter how weird, <laughs> no matter how crazy or stupid. If it makes me laugh, it's okay. Sometimes so the trick is to stay up late enough that you're just giddy enough you'll laugh at anything, and that makes the joke. I guess so. Sometimes, okay. sometimes you know, you'll hear a bad pun or something like that. Right. That's usually when I'm not around for Lawrence to bounce things. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> yeah, puns aren't your thing. Oh, you know, I could be a punster if I wanted to, but puns don't make me laugh. They make right, me okay. groan. That's they're what, groaners. Yeah, they're groaners. All right, so let's get right to Better Know Framework. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, in this Better Know Framework, this... Uh, and by the way, I didn't mean to, to say that Lawrence wasn't a funny guy. He's actually come up with some of the best jokes that we've ever done on, on .NET Rocks. Uh, this Better Know Framework brought to you by System.Math. The oh. System.Math well, namespace. Yeah, System.Math. You know, is it a namespace or is it a class with a bunch of public methods? I think it's a a class, actually. It is not a namespace. All right. So the math members uh, do stuff from anywhere from max and min, 
you know, to get the maximum or the minimum number, right. to absolute values, to tangents and cosines and logarithms and floors and, and all that good uh, math stuff. Yeah, power raising to the power and square rounding. Root. Uh, square root. Yes. Uh, wait a minute. Square root. Do I see that sign? Sign. Sign. H. Oh yeah. S Q R T. Of course. There you go. Got to have the square root in there. Gotta. Can't have tangent, cosine, and secant without the uh, square root. Come on. And um, but there was, you know, one interesting thing as I'm looking in here, and which is really interesting, is I triple E remainder. What is that? So you know what mod is, right? Yeah, yeah. Mod returns the value left over when you divide one number by another. Right. Um, and this is similar, but the. The, the definition says it returns the remainder resulting from the division of a specified number by another specified number. And in the remarks, it says this operation complies with the remainder operation defined in Section 5.1 of ANSI Tripoli Standard 754-1985, the standard for binary floating point arithmetic. So um, I'm, I'm not, you know, math history guy. I don't know what the difference is between that. So this would be a good opportunity for an alert listener to educate us and the rest of our listeners. But you know what? I, I got to bet that it has to do with managing decimal places. I mean, you don't think much about mod no, of in course. round numbers. Yeah, it's got to it's gotta be the rounding. It's, it's got to be, be something in the rounding around, bi- you know, we're talking about binary floating point math, right. which as we know is, you know, vague. There's a lot of weird cheats going on right. inside of the math system. Right. So. Yeah, I could see why there'd be a, a special function just for dealing with remainders in that scenario. Yep. And then there's also Big Mull. <laughs> big Mull? B- Math.BigMull, M-U-L, which produces the full product of two 32-bit numbers. Oh. Yeah. Big Mull. <laughs> <laughs> for Big Multiply. Exactly. Now, what's interesting is if they have a little example here that demonstrates it. And they have two integers, which are the 32-bit maximum value. Right. And multiply them together. Now, the result is in, in Visual Basic along and uh, in C-sharp along also, which is a 64-bit number. Right. So it's a 64-bit product of two 32-bit numbers. Pretty cool. System.math, coming to a theater near you. Nice. Richard, what's up on the email today? Oh, got a quick one for you. This one starts out, Hi, guys. As an Outlook developer, I really enjoyed the show you had on Sue Mosher's view of the Outlook programming world. Yeah. She's a great source of information, and for me personally, when I listen to her, it's like a mini-series of explosions in my head Uh-oh. because she comes up with such good ideas for future products. I downloaded the show for listening again later, as I'm sure I missed some info the first time around. Okay. Since this was my first time listening to .NET Rocks, I'm going to download some other shows to listen to as well. Next up, the Dynamics CRM Specialist, David Yak. I'm glad I found you. Keep up the good work. Mike Sperry from Sperry Software. Wow. And Sperry Software makes Outlook add-ins. Ah. There you go. So, A, welcome, Mike. Glad to have you on board. Yeah. And it's always amazing to find, you know, new listeners. It doesn't, I, I always think we've reached everybody, but apparently we haven't. Yeah, there's still a whole bunch more out there, believe it or not. So if you are listening to the show and you know somebody who isn't, pass it along. We'd like you to share. Yeah, please share. In fact, we we encourage we want you to share. This is uh this is not copyrighted material in the sense that you're gonna be breaking the law if you copy it and share it. We we encourage it. So do that. Right now. And Richard and I, of course, are in uh, Vancouver this week. Well, Richard's always in Vancouver, isn't he? But uh, we're both at the Dev Teach conference, and uh, Dev Teach is in Vancouver for the first time, right? For the first time ever, yes. Yeah. Very excited. Nice crowd. I've already gotten the numbers, even though we're recording this before the conference, so I know it's going to be busy. Yep. And uh, we've got a show planned uh, on open source. I got a cool panel put together for the Wednesday night. So I hope everybody who's listening to the show is going to come out tomorrow. This is the Tuesday show. To see the panel. Very cool. Hey, guess what? Shrinkster.com is back online. Yay! And we're hosting it. Yeah, it's uh, it's us now, right? Yeah, and one thing that you'll notice is it's, you probably notice it's going to be faster. Yeah. And not only is it faster to load, but it's also faster to transfer. We There was a five-second delay before, and now it's only half a second. Cool. 
So when you put in a shrinkster.com number, now it's pretty much instantaneous that you go right to the URL. And uh, I wanted to do that just because nobody wants to sit and wait. And nobody wants to sit and look at a the Shrinkster screen while they're waiting for their website to come up. Right. Yeah. So enjoy that. Also, um, you know, the Infusion people are still looking for great developers in New York City. If you want to live in Manhattan rent-free in an apartment put up by the Infusion people and uh, work in New York City in the financial district, it's a whole lot of fun and a whole lot of .NET Rocks listeners have joined. Uh, go to shrinkster.com slash kh6 for more information on that. Well, Richard, I'm really, really excited today because we have uh, some very distinguished people on the show talking about F-sharp and all. Don Syme is a researcher at Microsoft Research in Cambridge. His first major project at Microsoft was .NET Generics, which he proposed to the Microsoft product teams in 1999 and saw through to productization in C-sharp, VB, and C++ in Visual Studio 2005. Since then, he's been researcher and design lead on F-Sharp, which is now transitioning to a more official status through a partnership with the Microsoft Developer Division. Luke Hoban is Program Manager in F-Sharp. Previously, he's been PM on the C-Sharp IDE and the C-Sharp Compiler, and has worked extensively on Link and the C-Sharp 3.0 language features. And finally, Ralph Herbrich is also a researcher at Microsoft Research Cambridge in machine learning. He uses F-sharp every day in his work, which involves applying statistical analysis to massive data sets, particularly with regard to ranking problems. He received a credit on Halo 3 for his contributions to the true skill TM ranking and matchmaking system used in that game. Ralph, Luke, and Don, welcome to .NET Rocks. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for the intro. Well, I think the one thing that stands out in that intro is the uh, F-sharp transitioning to a more official status through a partnership with the Microsoft Developer Division. What exactly do you mean by that, Don? So, um, we, yeah, it's a very, very exciting time for the F-sharp language just now. We have... Uh, we had a, uh, I think a, quite a number of the listeners may have seen uh, an announcement of uh, the blog entry written by uh, Soma, the head of the Microsoft Developer Division, where he uh, essentially outlines, um, in, in, in broad terms, our, our plans with F Sharp and sort of some of the rationale for why um, Microsoft are, are interested in it, and uh, essentially. Um, by making the transition where we're going to obviously be polishing F-sharp as a language implementation and sort of in the way Simon put it was really to make it a first class programming language in, uh, in .NET and on the uh, in, inside uh, with regard to a sort of a superb tooling experience with Visual Studio. And uh, we sort of transitioning projects out of research takes a bit of time and we're really just kind of working out what that means for F-sharp and doing the planning process and kind of working out what bits of the implementation of the language and its tools sort of need a lot of uh, work and need a lot of attention. Mm. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm very excited to be to have the team uh, sort of building the F-sharp team and just um, looking forward to sort of working over the next year, year and a half and beyond that to really deliver it through to customers. So we had to use it as a, as a productivity tool in lots of situations. So it's going to be in the box, or is it going to be a separate download, or how's that going to work? Yeah, that's one of the things we're still working on uh, on determining right now. Currently, there's uh, a release out of Microsoft Research that's available, um, and we're sort of going to continue a few of those um, in the near term. But uh, in the longer term, in terms of later versions of Visual Studio um, and the availability of F-Sharp, that's something we haven't been able to figure out yet. Um, we're sort of working on figuring out what pieces are important for that, uh, and hopefully we'll know in the next few months more about what kind of actual products it'll be part of. Okay. And, and just to be clear here, there's no way you're going to be in Studio 2008. That's already cast. I mean, yeah. it's about to RTM. Oh, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah, with, uh, yeah so, so 2008 isn't really the, the question, and um, we're just kind of looking at um, there's a lot of trade-offs you make as you work out how you uh, kind of deliver language technology through to uh, customers. And um, there's uh, one thing we're certain about, for example, is that sort of F-sharp, there will be a sort of free 
uh, free for use, uh, Sharp in the same way. See, the, in, in the same way that uh, uh, you, know, you can use, say, the uh, C Sharp compiler. I've always been able to use the C Sharp compiler through the .NET framework and the like. And that's obviously crucial in order to have a language community and to really uh, to, to you know for, for lots and lots of reasons. Um, so there are some things which are totally clear, and then there's lots of planning to do about uh, how we about the sort of ship vehicles we'll be using for for to get to get this out. So before we go on, Don, this is you talking right now, right? That was me, and yeah. then that was Luke. And so. Luke before that. That's right. Okay, Ralph, we haven't heard from you. You're lurking so, uh, in the background. I think I'm in the way the odd one out here. I'm the user. I represent not so much the developers of a sharp, but the uh, the early users. So. Our team is we working in machine learning, and our particular team, which is six people big, works on applying machine learning um, to to computer games, but also to to other more abstract games, such as online advertisement game or web search game. Um, so one of the things that we've been heavily involved with and actually invented um, was the ranking system for the Xbox 360. So a lot of the uh, um, a lot of the appeal of Xbox uh, 360 is in this revamped Xbox Live service, the online gaming service, and and the key feature, core feature to make an online game fun is to be able to assess how good is a player. And you have to imagine there's right now there's over seven million players playing actively several million games per day, and uh, basically solving this problem of recording all the all the match outcomes of these of these all these million match outcomes and then incorporating these match outcomes so us to know who's the better player and and which people are perfect matches because they'll they'll have a you know they have a fight versus 50-50 who's going to win and lose that's that's kind of the technology that um that we used used F sharp or the early versions of F sharp for in analyzing it now something so, tells me you don't use just kill counts for that you, no, no, you don't use the skill counts for that. You basically, in, in a way, what you do is you, you realize, you say that if a play player, if I've, uh, and, and me and Don have played um, a racing game and, and I came up first and he came out second, then all we know is really I'm better than him, but where exactly how much better is to be determined by other people that I play and other people that Don plays. So so that's it's not just the times or the kill counts. That wouldn't work. That's, that's yeah. too simple. Um, and um, so one of the one of the problems is I was, you can kind of get an idea of the dimension of the data we are dealing with here. If we're dealing with several million match match outcomes per day, you know, um, we're dealing with several tens of millions of matches within a, over a year. And a lot of game developers, this is a fairly state of the art system. It won um, at a major machine learning conference. It won an oral presentation last year. So it's 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 right at the cutting edge of of machine learning research. But it's it still has to be very useful to every game developer, and and it's this complexity needs to be built on by doing a lot of simulations and helping the developers of a racing game or of a shooting game or of a board game with their particular genre. And, and a lot of the simulations like um, have have been done here on our end with uh, with tools written in F Sharp um, or early versions of it. So, so that was one of the one of the big applications um, of, that we've been doing, and and the, one of the one of the really nice things with F Sharp is that um, by 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 training we are researchers, but um, these are develop these are major develop major development tasks. And with F Sharp, we really can bridge this gap. Like um, we as researchers write exactly the same code as then used by by our developers um, that build the entire infrastructure around it um, for the analysis. So, for example, recently we've been doing um, we've been doing a, a task where we took 65 million match outcomes and completely re-ranked them um, in a thousand different ways. So this is more games than will ever be played on Xbox Live that we that we simulated. And we needed a distributed application that ran on 50 machines, kept them busy for an entire week. Um, so, but the, the good thing is, the core of the the math of this of this program could still be written or was written by us researchers. And and the whole the whole time it took from this is a simulation we need to do, and here's the code that actually runs on our cluster. was was a week or, or two weeks rather wow. than months. So it's it's it's, a, it's very quick, and one is very agile in turning a, a scientific idea into 
um, into a piece of code that actually executes. Well, now, Ralph, we did a show on the basics of F-sharp, and I want to mention that to the listener because uh, we're coming right into this conversation as if everybody understands what you know functional programming is. So if you are new to that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that show. But the gist of it is that instead of being procedural or object-oriented, you're basically passing code pointers around to functions instead of calling functions with data. Is that right? The data is the function. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that, that, that's one common feature of uh, functional programming languages. And in fact, it's uh, the notion of a function as a value is, uh, of course, actually goes well beyond the traditional functional languages, such as uh, where sort of F-sharp fits in and uh, other functional languages that people might be familiar with, like Lisp or Haskell or yeah. Scheme. And we, we see that notion occurring in lots of languages now, certainly in C-sharp 3.0, or it's in Python and in a whole uh, range of other languages. Yeah. So in a sense, with that very uh, kind of I think broad notion of uh, a functional language, then you'd be talking about a lot of languages. But when you sort of, when you actually kind of look a bit more deeply at what uh, functional programming means, uh, I kind of uh, like to characterize it in a few different ways. One is certainly that the whole language, these languages are set up to make you think about using less mutable state, being less imperative and in, yeah. in mutating. You don't think of things so much in terms of uh, objects, although objects may form a part of your, your, your programming. Uh, it's uh, it's not totally oriented around objects. It's more or- oriented around you know, uh, uh, what we think of as sort of a mathematical solving, solving, expressing your the decomposition of your problem in a kind of mathematical kind of way. Yeah. Other than just in terms of co- its concrete realization of as objects. I mean, in the end, of course, we're running on .NET. Everything is objects underneath. But you're if for certain classes of programs, you're kind of lifting the game a bit. You're kind of expressing things at a more in a more declarative kind of way. And I and I take it that this is really, really useful for these kinds of recursive functions that uh that have to go through a lot of data and follow a unique path. Yeah, so re- recursive decomposition is a very uh is a is a is a beautiful declarative way of solving many, um, many problems. And so that does feature a lot in functional programming. And is this basically the feature that you used in, in creating the ranking system? Um, the, uh, so recursive decomposition is, is, yeah, it, is not a huge part of that particular problem, which is why, again, sometimes people think, you know, functional programming like equals sort of recursive kind of structures. But uh, what is uh, the, the features that I'd highlight, um, I like to highlight in, in, in Ralph's work. One, one major feature is to do with uh, extensive use of type inference throughout a, uh, these functional programming languages. And we've seen a lot of type inference in uh, Link in C Sharp 3.0. And that's kind of like taking it, I like to say that it's like taking it uh, two steps. And that what you see in the functional programming languages is like taking type inference quite a lot further. Yeah. Uh, and, and we also see in Link as well, we sort of see a kind of declarative programming beginning to make its, uh, take, you know, make its appearance in integrated with, uh, with these, um, existing programming languages. And you, you'll get a lot of that flavor in the functional programming languages as well. So when you look at Ralph working, what I see is, the, the the fact that you don't have to uh, write types all the way through your code and you're kind of working with very mathematically oriented language, then he's that that just places it close to the the uh, the the mathematics, the science, the, the, the kind of the research that he does, and yeah. so we're kind of seeing F sharp playing a, a role as a bridge language between the kind of people who have a mathematical orientation and then the actual people who have to. Um, uh, who, who, who say work with C Sharp with um, or professional developers. So one of the other appealing features of F Sharp um, in that context was that the original um, ranking code for Xbox 360 Live is written in C Sharp and runs on the runs on the service. So we needed to make sure that we don't have to reinvent the wheel, re-implement everything. We needed to be able to use exactly the same code that was running on the service when we did our simulations. So the fact that uh, F-Sharp deeply integrates with .NET 
was a, was a major major feature benefit here. You know, it was it was simply one uh, using statement away, or in, in a sharp terms, an open statement away, and and I had um, the entire Trusca library at my disposal, and I could use it, and I knew it's got to be exactly the same code that runs on the service, which was very important. Hey, this is Carl. I just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about Telerix Q2 2000 Tools Update, which can be summed up this way. Blazing fast performance for ASP.NET, WPF-like visual effects for Windows Forms, and codeless reporting. The AJAX-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Form Suite. It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting, you can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features, like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. Being able to leverage the C-sharp code you already had, it just took less time to implement all this, and you knew you'd get the same kind of results. Absolutely. What did the role did F-sharp really play in this then? One of the benefits of, of using, using F-sharp, one of the features that was very appealing, is that the type inference that was, that was that's built into the compiler um, makes you write, makes you make far less, far less mistakes, far less, far less semantical mistakes where you, com you know, add the wrong numbers or you, you build the wrong averages. Um, and in fact, the C sharp code that we did have was, was strongly typed, so it was already kind of prepared for, for usage in the, um, with the type inference that was built in. And correctness is, is, is one of the things that's very important for us and that, you know, mathematical correctness is important when we do, when you do these kind of large analysis. So, so that that was actually a feature, and Don had, had been saying this already. That um, that made made a major difference, and helps us. In fact, helps us writing um, helps us usually writing far less correct code, a code that just um, code that compiles, but also executes the the right mathematics. And and so um, that that was that was a major um, a major differentiator for us major feature that helped us um, helped us making our analysis quick and correct. Ralph, you sort of just said off the cuff, and then we threw it on a cluster of servers for a week, yeah. which I love because I'm a hardware <laughs> nut. But one of the things I've really been looking at with F-Sharp is it seemed like it naturally builds itself, the way that it builds its code lends itself to this sort of clustering work. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but... And the corollary question to this is, how much effort did you have to go in the code you wrote to get it to distribute across a cluster like that? Right. So what I, the, the, um, what I should say here is that the distribution was fairly easy to, to – uh, the computation was fairly easy to distribute because what we effectively did is we um, reordered – we took the same set of 65 million match outcomes and then re-ran the ranking algorithm with different sets of parameters. So it naturally parallelized by simply saying each of the machines is getting a different parameter set to re-rank the entire list of games oh, okay. and record where every player's skill had been at every moment in time. Um, so it was mainly .NET remoting that we used to, to execute the, the tasks. And each machine was given duties for a given ranking set. You weren't ever distributing a given ranking set across multiple machines. No, that's right. So okay. we were giving each machine a particular re-ranking task, so the parameters of the ranking system changed. And when it was finished, usually after about an hour, we could just kick off another one, and that that kept, uh, you know, because we scanned over effectively a thousand different parameters. Right. 
And all these results are now available to the uh, gaming uh, to the game developer community. Um, we're a, we're a web we're a web interface where we simply took the results of these re-rankings and made them make them browsable, um, so the, the development community can benefit from it. The game development community, um, but they were they were mainly they were very easy to parallelize. Um, again, it was it was of course very handy to have .NET remoting libraries available. Um, the whole .NET integration is is a huge benefit. I mean, when we had to access this kind of data, we accessed them from a SQL server. Again, that's about 10 lines um, of, of calls to .NET libraries, and you have wow. the data from the SQL server within within your application. And then then you call then you call the existing TrueScale uh, library. It's more and then then you did the math and summarizing this information. And this is where um, where Sharp uh, really came came uh, as a benefit in the type inference system when we summarized this information. Because you have to imagine, if you if you really take that many games and you re-rank them a thousand times, then you're talking the raw the raw data, which is pretty much where was every player at every moment in time um, in all these 1,000 rankings. The raw data of that um, was 52 gigabytes. So this this needed to be summarized further to be in a in a browsable state for the development community, where now game developers can go in and can say, so if I use this and that parameter, where would my game population be? After 10 games, after 50 games, after 100 games, that's what game developers need to know. You know, where, where will I find my gamers? Will they have completely separated across the entire level range? How long will it right. take? Um, you know, how, in which way do I slow down or speed up the ranking system by altering this this external parameter? That mathematically is very complicated, but I just want to know as a game developer um, what's the what's the effect by altering it. Now, I have a question about the um, the, the way that F Sharp is going to be in you know put in the product or not not partic- exactly about how it's going to be accessed downloaded or in the box but um it sort of it sort of uh, opens up uh, a can of possibilities for and notice how I said a can of possibilities not a can of worms a can of possibilities for mathematical functions to be included in visual studio you know the scientific and mathematical functions along with the language do you do you foresee that happening? Yeah, I kind of see these as two separate questions. There are some fantastic uh, third-party uh, libraries uh, uh, available, uh, so sort of non, you know, uh, non-Microsoft libraries available today for doing this kind of work. There's a uh, um, there's a sort of ubiquitous LA pack, which is uh, uh, not too hard to use from C Sharp or from uh, F Sharp. And uh, there are sort of great libraries like Extreme Optimization and NMath and other ones that you can kind of use. But yeah, a lot of people do definitely see the that there's there's a natural fit between those kind of tools and um, and functional programming. Though of course, you know the the question about so the two questions that are often raised are about math and visualization, sort of uh, and. Right. Um, those are also very important questions in uh, in for C sharp programmers and Visual Basic programmers as well. Right. So, sure. Um, the yeah. So I, I I think that you know that that we see a lot of our users asking uh, for that kind of uh, functionality, or at least you know what yeah. what are our recommendations for that kind of. It almost seems like uh, it could be a different skew of uh, Visual Studio. Visual yeah, that's Studio possible. Though what we're seeing, what we see with, say, Ralph's uh, work, and also the, for example, the um, the image processing group here at Microsoft Research in Cambridge do amazing, just 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 amazing research with regard to uh, you know, manipulating images, maybe de- de- detecting objects in videos and and uh, images, and so this, of course, will see its way through to just uh, sort of. Um, User applications, perhaps in in, in Windows or uh, and the like. So, in a way, I kind of think of this as going beyond. Uh, these these comp- components can end up being used in all sorts of situations that you may not right. use. Like just like a lot of other components, like we don't have we don't, for instance, have a particular SKU for distributed uh, computing uh, or other other domain. What you might think of as domains in computing. So, um, yeah. So I think that's. Yeah, you're sort of spot on that that's a great synergy between this kind of length for this kind of language. Yeah. It must be great to see that happen in the community. Somebody using your languages for stuff that you didn't even think of, you know, when you're putting them all together and architecting them. You're like, you know, we're just putting out these tools. People are going to run with it and do 
something spectacular. That's right. Ralph was touching on some points that are quite uh, that matter a lot to me with regard to Sharp. He was talking about how uh, you, you your bug rate in certain classes of programming, your bug rate just kind of reduces, uh, goes goes right down when you're doing this kind of programming. Everybody who's used Link, for example, knows that it's just really much easier to get that, those kind of data queries right when you're using link because you're using sort of declarative style of programming. And people use, who use F-sharp find that experience in, throughout their programming, not just to do with data queries. Uh, and there are some, some domains where that doesn't apply quite so much, but there are many, many domains where it does apply. And what, the way I see it, actually, is that functional programming is often about building correct programs out of correct building blocks. Huh. And you know that you can actually sort of it's about compositionality in programming. One of the things that uh, that really um, unites all the different kinds of functional programming or different variations on it is that everyone's always striving for this level of compositionality uh, uh, and sort of yeah correctness by composition. Um, and that uh, yeah that 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 just is a really unifying theme of the whole. Um, whole business. Now, and you see that, for example, people often talk about like functional programming using immutable data structures, okay, data structures which you can't change like trees, you know, you've got a tree representing some input and you, you transform it recursively and you get another tree coming out the other end. And one of the things that immutable data structures are beautiful because your bug rate is so low. Okay, if you can afford the cost of maybe doing a bit of memory copying or even there are some immutable data structures which are actually implemented very efficiently so that they share a lot of internal nodes, if you can d use these data structures for large parts of your programs, then your bug rate is just much, much lower as a result, yeah, if, it's, if it's a fit for the tasks that you're trying to perform. And uh, so, in, and the way I kind of put that is that immutable data structures compose well. You know, a bit program fragments that are written using immutable data structures just sort of can be composed with other pro similar program fragments and everything keeps on working. You don't get any nasty interaction in sort of shared memory or data structures getting corrupted. They also work extremely well across threads. So, for example, you in F-sharp, when I'm doing multi-threaded programming, so multi-core programming, I really notice how I can just throw these data structures around between threads, uh, say, as part of a message, and... Uh, and you know nothing's going to go wrong because the data structure is immutable. Now, those messages just stay on the stack, right? There, or is there a stack? What is no, the they, data they structure? They ultimately will be object allocated in the heap. So these immutable data structures like an immutable list or a immutable set represented as a tree or maybe a mutable map, like a dictionary-like structure, again, represented as a lookup tree, uh, will ultimately be in the heap. But you, you sort of you don't think about that quite so much uh, when you're doing F# -sharp programming. You don't right. because you're working in a more declarative kind of way. Well, I know that in a traditional object-oriented programming language, when you have the ability to pass, um, uh, when you have like a process that is going to be asynchronous, and let's just say it uses one thread, and then that thread finishes, you can pass objects through from the calling thread to the background thread and then back to the calling thread. And as long as no other objects are using that and, and you have a the sole reference to it, you know, you don't have to worry about the threading issues. But Yeah, that's right. Even And that's actually another strong theme of functional programming, especially in F-sharp programming, is in a sense uh, you kind of, when you do use state, so there are lots of places where you do have to use uh, mutable, some mutable data structures, or you maybe you have to pass around a connection to a database or a handle to read from a file. And you really, um, when you do use state, you want it sort of separated off. And one, uh, actually, you mentioned asynchronous programming, and that's been a major thing we've been looking at just recently with F-sharp. And uh, there is just uh, beautiful examples of doing uh, asynchronous programs where your computation sort of hops from one thread to another. Maybe right. it sort of starts off life in the thread pool and then migrates to another thread and then does a bit of work, then goes to sleep while it's waiting for some system event and then continues on. And you can look at these little programs and you can kind of tell that if they're, first of all, a lot of the time you're using immutable data structures, you don't have to worry about them at all. And what you're left with is the 
core sort of analysis that you need to do. You can see, say, some file handles or database connection handles that are being passed around. And you can tell that they're not escaping. You can tell that they're being sort of separated off and right. disposed of at the end of the day. And uh, that I see F-sharp largely about getting rid of a lot of complexity in programming and leaving the core essential problem of, you know, what am I really trying to get done here? And sort of just exposing the the essence of that problem to the programmer, so they don't have to think about a whole lot of other things. Well, I mean, uh, you have to uh, you get to focus on your algorithm. Is that what do you think, Luke? Luke? Yeah, I was sort of nodding here. I think um, in response to that, but yeah, I think that's one of the big striking things. Uh, probably a lot of the folks uh, listening to this have come from something like C Sharp or VB, and one of the big differentiators with something like F Sharp is um, it's got a very uh, terse syntax. Um, and so what the code you end up writing is uh, more just what is my problem domain um, and less of the sort of uh, information about carrying along types, uh, like Don and Ralph were talking about type, uh, F-sharp has type inference, so you don't have to write as many types in your code. And also a bit less of some of the things to um, be explicit about uh, about sort of the object system and things like that. Because you're doing sort of functional programming, uh, you can very often just have a very terse representation of of the idea that you're trying to represent. And so I think for, for mathematical folks, for researchers who have sort of an idea in their head, they want to get it into the computer as quickly as possible, F-sharp gives them a pretty quick route um, to do that. But for non-mathematical programs, I mean, business line of business applications, is this an appropriate language to use for that? So the way I look at it is, I mean, I don't, uh, we, we're certainly not thinking of F-sharp as a sort of, as a line of business uh, programming language. You know, you, you never know. Some people may decide it's, it's the... Uh, a good fit for for some for some uh, parts of that, but uh, that's not what we think of it as, yeah. But we do very very much think of it as a bridge language between uh, people in the more mathematical disciplines and uh, and the sort of the professional the world of the professional developers. So, uh, for example, we had in Ralph's group here, we have uh, Phil Trelford, who's who uh, when he joined was just a C sharp C plus plus programmer, a very experienced one. And in one month, he was writing production uh, quality, F-sharp uh, F code. That's uh, When I say production quality, I mean uh, research uh, production quality, which is right. always slightly different, a slight difference. Uh, um, but, yeah, he was working uh, on F-sharp code bases and um, yeah, writing substantial amounts of code uh, in a very short amount of time. So we consider the... Uh, you know that we certainly want to make the language accessible to that uh, the uh, professional developer world. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. I'm thinking about the complexities around multi-threaded programming in C-sharp or pretty much any other .NET language and wondering if F-sharp is just going to simplify this substantially. I mean, we've got more and more cores on the desktop, and it's not all that tough to use two of them, but using more seems unlikely. So my, my interest keeps going wandering back to, is this going to lend me uh, some simplicity in doing multiple simultaneous tasks that utilize the machine more effectively? Um, yeah, I mean, actually, I, yeah, I think there's very it's a widespread agreement that functional programming is one important tool we have to bring to the uh, concurrency um, and multi-core kind of uh, programming that more and more people will be faced with. Uh, it's certainly not a silver bullet, you know. I, I, I think there's many aspects of, of, of functional, uh, oh, sorry, of the multi-core problem. And uh, the, the key thing about functional programming is, I think, it, is that, as I said, because you're working with uh, less state, yeah, it certainly makes the parallelization uh, and uh, simpler as a result. You and you see this, uh, say, with P-Link, for example. I'm not sure if you guys have done. Have you guys done a show on uh, on sort of 
P-Link and with uh, and and the, the the futures library that is come coming out of Microsoft Research. Not specifically P-Link. I mean, Link has permeated us for quite a while now, and I think it's really one of the reasons we ended up talking about F Sharp was this whole concept of functional programming is coming to Studio in so many ways. But you know, go ahead and drill into P-Link for us because I think it's an important technology. You guys have what twenty two letters in the alphabet left for uh, yeah. to put in front of Link. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so P-Link was a, 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 I guess, an incubation project done by the Microsoft Developer Division. Joe Duffy uh, was the lead on yeah. that, and uh, you can read about it on the MSDN magazine uh, site. Uh, we can send you a link around after the show. And um, the, the 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 great thing there, it's really about uh, parallelizing uh, link data queries. And basically, uh, it's syntactically beautiful where you just put, uh, as parallel onto your, uh, link query. And it sort of, uh, it, it sort of works out, uh, a, at a first approximation works out the, a, a decent way of, uh, dividing up the loop, uh, into, uh, uh, into work units. And it uses an approach called, uh, work stealing where it divides it up into lots of little tasks. And if, Gives it to the, all the multi, the multiple cores, and, uh, they start working on their individual chunks, and when one runs out, it, it goes and steals from the other, and gets, and does, does the work on its behalf. And, uh, this is, uh, comes from systems like Silk, done in MIT back in the early 90s as well. And the great thing here with regard to functional programming is there's just an assumption made through P-Link that these, uh, that these tasks, these iterations of the loop, are independent in a certain sense. That doesn't mean they have to be purely functional. They can, for instance, write their results into different parts of a bitmap. And so one of the great demos that they've got is actually a ray tracer, which was actually originally written by Luke, Luke here. And this thing just flies. When you see this demo, it's just, just amazing, <laughs> like on a 16-core machine. And you just, it's, all, it's almost... You just cannot believe how uh, what a difference this multi-core thing yeah. is making to that to that algorithm, and with relatively small changes to the the code. And that, to me, I think is the key. Is I want to minimize the amount of effort that developers are doing to utilize multiple cores. That there should be no difference. There's one core programming, and then there's more than one core programming. And as soon as you've made the commitment to deal with more than one, whether it's two or four or eight or sixteen, it should work the same. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, there can be um, there, there's certainly a difference between data parallelism, where you have massive numbers of cores, and uh, different sort of uh, maybe when you have two or four cores, you may be thinking much more about uh, breaking your programming program up into uh, to get a sort of reactive to improve the reactive behavior of your of your of your program. So right. with a two core machine, you know, you put the spell checker on the background thread, everything goes. Right. I think that that's the way most people think of parallel programming is the foreground thread and the background thread. And two cores is enough. Right. That's right. But we have to, we absolutely have to move beyond that. And functional programming, things like, it just like, you'll naturally, the, the more of your program that is written in a functional style, then the more of it will lend itself to being decomposed into tasks, which can, uh, which can be processed independently. Uh, it can take a little bit of work, a little bit of code change to expose that to say engines like uh, the to, to a scheduling engine, uh, a task scheduling engine. But uh, we, it's a fact that the decomposition is in, you know, relatively straightforward. And uh, just so the listeners know, and normally I wouldn't talk about a future show, but we already have Joe Duffy on the schedule for talking about the Task Parallel Library. And now that I've said that, I'm sure something will go wrong and we won't get the show. But that's my intent is that I, I'm very interested in what's happening with the TPL. I mean, I think we're really looking at what .NET 4.0 is going to be about. Anything that you guys can do to uh, simplify the task of multi-threaded programming is going to obviously be a big win because it isn't going to be long before we have, you know, 80, 100 cores on those machines. Yeah, and I'm actually interested in two sides to this problem. There's the 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 the, the, the job of utilizing uh, the multi multiple CPUs, but there's also the job of uh, regular what reactive programming, where we maybe we're an asynchronous programming, where maybe we want to fetch a whole bunch of websites in in parallel in, uh, at the same time, and that's actually not consuming the cores. Yeah, we don't want to block threads. We just want to wait until the requests come back, uh, and so. 
I see that we have to look at things that solve that let us have that let us write programs that work a little bit on the the CPUs and also spend their time waiting for the I/O requests to come back. Uh, and then mo- looking beyond that, we have to actually look at sort of the distributed programming question as well to uh, to write programs that are good message passing programs, for example, and to make message passing programming very simple. Um, so uh, in the functional programming space, we certainly have systems like Erlang, which are just uh, a great programming languages for, for doing kind of message passing programming. And uh, uh, so I'm sure, sure we'll be seeing more of that. And again, good, good overlap and synergy with functional programming in that kind of area. So, Don, you strike me as a kind of a funny researcher because you, uh-huh. you, you, you drove generics into the product, which doesn't sound to me like, and by the way, thank you for that. Yeah. Because kind of like them. They're neat. Glad <laughs> we got them. But yeah. what kind of researcher are you that you keep productizing your research? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's definitely why I'm at Microsoft Research. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I, I see Microsoft Research as an as an opportunity to work uh, uh, to to see to, to act as a bridge between uh, the maybe the academic world or ideas that have come out of the academic world and to be able to work with um, to to deliver those through to uh, to, to programmers. Um, but there's definitely research involved along the way. You know that we did. Uh, Generics was the first of its kind. Nobody had ever suggested dealing with generics in the virtual machine, right? Fundamental design decision there. And, you know, it's just that when you're a researcher, somehow the um, – it's actually in some ways also where research is in Cambridge, quite away from Redmond, and we – that means you can sometimes just see a problem perhaps a little more clearly than people uh, do in Redmond. And so something like generics absolutely cut across about four or five major teams inside Microsoft. And so if you're in the actual uh, product team, it's very hard to imagine starting that because it would just affect everybody's working life. You know, you'd actually have to get so many people to agree to this thing that you would never even contemplate doing a feature like that. So the only reason you pulled it off is you didn't know better. Um, no, no, they, of course, they, they people people knew it was a, an issue, you know, C++ templates and everything like that. So it was a big, uh, it was, yeah. it was a big deal. But didn't it, come out of nowhere. Not out of nowhere, yeah. And um, the, uh, it, the key thing for me is that we were able to sort of drive that uh, thing which, which affected many, many different teams and, and, and still sort of make the case to each of the teams. And perhaps the uh, the key moment for me with generics was when we actually had uh, the C Sharp and the CLR and the uh, VB guys and I think the C++ guys all in the room. And it suddenly occurred to me, hey, if we just all let's start assuming we're going to do this, then nobody's going to say no because we all want it. Right. So you kind of once the circuit goes into the high state, then it kind of just stays in the high state, and then. Uh, then uh, that that it sort of just eventually just went through went through the system and went through the uh, the kind of the, into, into the product. Um, yeah, we make it sound so easy. Research is an opportunity to uh, to 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 influence products, and products is an opportunity to uh, to help inspire research as well. Now, I don't want to put F sharp into a box over this, but. Most of what I hear you saying is that this is still very much an academic's language and a, or a mathematician's language. And so are we, by productizing it, maybe making it part of studio, are we really saying we're making an incarnation of studio that's great on the academic side? Or do you get a sense that regular business programmers are going to have some problems that they're trying to solve in their line of business apps that would best be solved by F-sharp? Um, so... Um, so, yeah, to answer that, I mean, Visual Studio is great in the academic space already. I mean, I think the languages we have there uh, just make really compelling kind of I – mean, C-sharp is a, just a beautiful teaching language because it, it, it's quite a concrete language and it's also quite quite a high-level language, and you can really see see a lot of the concepts of programming through C-sharp. Uh, for F-sharp is a general-purpose programming language. It, 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 it language. It has to be in many ways if we wanted to fill this bridge role between uh, – 
uh, between researchers or the sort of mathematically oriented programming and uh, um, and the professional development kind of world. So um, I don't really I, I I I do I don't think of it as a language just for the mathematician. It's just that that is a particular yeah kind of area where where people um, will will find the language particularly appealing and I think give a pro- productivity benefit. Uh, it's also that what we think of as mathematically oriented programming isn't uh, just restricted to the research labs, uh, so work like Ralph is doing, but it runs, for instance, all the way through financial analysis, uh, so derivatives analysis. Uh, these people are just professional developers who do mathematically oriented programming all day. They may not think of themselves as professional developers, but they've got all the needs of it. And then we look at uh, kind of the in the in the data mining or data analysis kind of realms. There are these great products you can buy, and so SQL Server and the like come with a lot of uh, kit for doing uh, analysis of uh, massive data sets. But there's also a need to actually be able to program against those data sets and to to sort of do bespoke uh, high performance multi-core, et cetera, et cetera, analyses against these data sets. And we see that, for instance, in the data that uh, companies like Google and also Microsoft through their web servers are collecting. Uh, There's just so much data there, and we need really smart algorithms, and we need a lot of really smart programmers applying themselves uh, to work with those data sets and to write algorithms related to those data sets. And so it's not something I kind of think of as just uh, the academic thing. It's because this kind of programming often plays a key role in in many uh, high you know, high value businesses. Uh, you know, often there's the sort of there's the core analytics group uh, of a financial institution or the like who come up with many key algorithms that are used to value products. And uh, the productivity of those of those guys, you know, really can be really key. And uh, so there's many different ways in which uh, this kind of language can serve. To uh, to sort of um, uh, deliver value to a business. Well, I think about Ralph's application of it, and I wonder about other businesses that ought to be doing more simulation style work or more analytic type work with the data sets they've got, which would typically be the domain of the the OLAP cube or something like that, to be able to do it uh, more declaratively, more in a language uh, approach. You might get results you otherwise didn't expect. We actually, um, let me chip in with a with a remark here. We, we besides this uh, work we've done on the ranking system for Xbox Live, um, <clears throat> which is also somewhat taking research to application level, we've been working with um, Ad Center um, recently for the last year or so, and that that's exactly the kind of the main you, you're you're referring to here, which is the analysis of. For example, click logs, you know, what clicks happen on which advertisements or on which web search results. And, um, you know, processing billions, and we're literally talking billions of such clicks, um, right now is actually done with, um, with, uh, in this project with an application and with all the analytics tools that are written in F-sharp. Um, and again, um, what Don was saying, the ability to, to have these building blocks that form that you can very nicely build correct programs from um, and that the fact that type inference plays a key role in, in, in analyzing such information and, and writing correct programs on such uh, information um, is, is actually some, one of, again, the reasons why, we, why we're using F-sharp for the analysis of, of click-through data from, from services such as um, the web service of Microsoft with online advertisements. So it's actually an ongoing project that we that we are doing um, the analysis of click through uh, click through data um, for online advertisements. I, I imagine Wall Street must really be interested in F sharp. I mean, any kind of real time analytics of of stock data and trading data that might be going on. Yeah, so certainly some of the uh, some very creative companies on uh, Wall Street uh, do use functional programming today. And uh, for example, I'd highlight say a company like Jane Street Capital. You know, this is a so it's a very fun company to go and visit. They're in uh, right next to Trinity Church on Wall Street on the top floor of a building there, and you kind of expect it to be all suits and everything, but it's just like a, a, a sort of traders and, and programmers uh, in a very casual environment. 
And yeah, these guys are using uh, functional programming. They they uh, mostly use the OCaml language, which is of course uh, F sharp is like a, a, a sister language to OCaml, and um, very much inspired by OCaml. Uh, and uh, that um, yeah, I, I think it's just a very good fit for that. That this kind of programming is a very good fit for that kind of work. Um, yeah, and uh, but it's all that, that's absolutely an area where the professional development needs also arise. You know, you need the great productivity of tools like Visual Studio. You need great if you can get great IntelliSense, that's really, that, that's really good. And you uh, and, and then the whole questions of distribution and concurrency and every uh, sort of all these all these things that you expect from a sort of uh, professional platform. I have to wonder what would happen with to F Sharp running in the SQL CLR. Up close to the database like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, I. It, it's funny. I think of of all the features in Visual Studio 2005. I mean, generics is of course the one I was involved in. But the thing that really amazed me was that they were pre prepared to do the reliability work that was necessary to, to get CLR code hosted inside the database. And the potential for this is, it's it's it's. It's so great. I mean, it's so. Uh, uh, in, it, 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 it can play. It could play such a key role in many high-performance data mining sort of analyses. Uh, so, I'm. We're certainly expecting that to be one way in which people deploy a sharp code. Uh, there's certainly this raises. Um, you know, a lot of as we do our planning for F sharp, we're kind of thinking to ourselves. So, where do we expect F sharp code to be? Running, you know, is it on the desktop? Is it in the database? Is it in Silverlight? You know, is it in the browser? Uh, and these are all really important questions yes. which we need to um, kind of address because there's some sense in which, uh, if we, it's a sense in which you you want it to work absolutely everywhere, and uh, we may well be able to achieve that as well. Uh, we want it to kind of have a smooth development experience, but also there's. It's also important to make sure you do what you're meant to do really, really well. And uh, that, um, I think, for instance, F sharp in the database is a very is a lot of a lot of value in in, in doing that well. Uh, and but we'll be uh, we kind of talking about that and making clear. I think as we go ahead with F sharp, uh, move ahead with F sharp, we want we will be perhaps a slightly different into. Um, some other Microsoft projects, and it's already been a very transparent project. People have been able to find out from me uh, or through uh, through my blog or wherever else uh, sort of what the status of the language is and what we expect and kind of um, – and we're, we're going to be continuing that very much. We'll be talking to the community and talking to potential major users and, and all sorts of users about what they need. And so if you've got ideas about and, and sort of arguments about we really think – you know, to do our kind of work, to we need you know certain certain things. You know, we need to have the WinForms uh, designer working with F Sharp. It doesn't currently work with uh, the distribution you get. Then that's the kind of feedback we really want to hear from users. If you say we need it absolutely working with Windows Workflow Foundation, we think this is just a great way to express these long-running transactions. Uh, then we want to hear about that and. Uh, Think about that as one of the key deployment scenarios. So, uh, yeah, so please uh, get in touch with us and uh, and uh, be part of sort of uh, shaping what the first uh, year of the language uh, will be like. I also noticed a blog post about using F Sharp in the XNA Game Studio. Yeah, that's an, that's exactly another e example of a place where .NET code ends up running. Uh, certainly, uh, I think there's. Again, it's really good synergy there between functional programming and uh, and games development. Um, it's uh, I'll I'll say right now that it's not upfront the uh, the the first thing we're going to be looking at doing with F sharp though I think it, it does but it's definitely on the list uh, of, of of possible deployment kind of major deployment scenarios for the language and it, this is really just a question of sort of prioritization of uh, Sort of deployment, uh, yeah, deployment scenarios. All right, John. Uh, any final words as we come to the end of the show? So, um, 
Thank you very, very much for having us. It's always uh, great to be part of the show. Or to, to, to thank you for highlighting a sharp in your shows. And um, if your listeners have got any questions, then please send them along to either uh, Luke or myself or to Ralph. Um, some great things that have just coming up in the next month for F-Sharp. We've got the uh, uh, the expert F-Sharp book will be available uh, on December the 3rd from APRES. You're the author of that, right? Yeah, I'm one of the three authors on the book, and uh, it, it, I'm really happy with how it's turned out. It's uh, There's something about F-Sharp code that you kind of get a lot explained about programming uh, pretty pretty quickly because the code's pretty succinct. And uh, we've had good feedback on the book, and so I'm very excited that that's coming out. We've also got a book called F-Sharp for Scientists in Preparation by John Harrop. Uh, and he was on your show, of course. And I don't yeah, think he, he did actually... 263, sort of our intro to F-Sharp. Right. That's right. And I don't think he really plugged his book at the end of the show, so I'll plug it for him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, there'll be a few new, few new, uh, releases of F-Sharp coming out the door, sort of, in the next, uh, next few weeks. So probably past by the time we've, this has gone to air. And, um, so, yeah, please send us your feedback and let us know what you think. Awesome. Don Syme, Luke Hoban, and Ralph Herberich are our guests. We've been talking about F-Sharp. And uh, thank you guys one more time from the bottom of my heart. It's a great product, and I can't wait to see it. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC, yes, I'm a 